I'd like to invite you to turn this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, we'll be reading, starting in verse 35. John 1, 35. Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven, the heavens open, and the angel of God, the angels of God descending, ascending, and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would deal bountifully with us this morning, that we may keep your word, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things from your law. God, we're thankful for this opportunity to spend time in your living word and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, and in all things you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So we spent the last, over the past year or so, uh, several weeks going through the gospel, the first chapter of the gospel of John, paying strict attention to the reason that that gospel exists, which is to focus on who Jesus Christ truly is. And the, in, the entirety of the first chapter of John really serves as an introduction to the gospel itself. And we don't actually see Jesus' public ministry starting until the second chapter at the uh, wedding in, in Cana when he turns water into wine. 
And great focus is often placed on not just the prologue to John, but the entirety, the entire the book of John, um, because it's a wealth of theological wisdom and spiritual help. However, sections like this that we're dealing with today often get glossed over. It's been said by some that the narrative sections are si- simply contain the facts of the events, but they're not intended to convey anything of of theological uh, significance. And so I, I read a couple of commentators that, that talked about how we need to be careful with narrative sections and how these are facts of events, but not uh, to not ext- get too much out of them, basically. That w- but I think that if we spend time looking at this gospel and looking at these narrative accounts, what, what we find is that they're a powerful means for us to understand how we're called by God to act and interact with the world around us. Uh, as some of you know, I'm a firefighter kind of uh, by trade. And in, in firefighting, we, uh, it, a lot of stock is placed in being able to cook well. And we do group meals together frequently. And very few people get hired and are good at cooking when they get hired. Uh, in fact, usually they're pretty terrible. And... Some guys are content with that and they're good just washing the dishes at the end of the day. But others who want to get better at it don't go out and take classes in culinary arts. They don't buy books. They just spend time in the kitchen with people who know what they're doing. They, we were talking about this idea this morning um, when, when we apply that same idea to God's word and how much power there is. We, we can often, theological books are great and classes are wonderful, and podcasts, and all the different things. But when we spend time just uh, asking questions of God's Word, and spending time in God's Word, it's a a powerful means for us to grow. And and sections like this that are, uh, quote-unquote, the facts of events, they can teach us so much. And that's my hope for today, that that we can look at this section of narrative, of of facts of events, and see what God has uh, has to teach us. And it's a huge section of scripture. And I think that there are a lot of things that we can get from it. And so I had to kind of take one thing and focus on it. And the thing I want to focus on today is evangelism. I think there are, I kind of broke this out into three points, three things that I want to pay attention to as we look at the implications that this section has on evangelism. So I'm going to focus on three things. The first thing thing will be the call, Christ's call. The second will be the means that he uses. And the third will be the result. So if we look at it in that order, as we start looking at the call. Now, depending on the version of Bible you're using, the uh, subtitle before verse 35 can differ quite a bit. It might say something like John's disciples follow Jesus. Maybe Jesus calls his first disciples or Jesus' public ministry first converts. I myself like the term first converts because I believe it helps distinguish this text from other similar texts that are conveying a different idea. This text can be difficult for many well-meaning Christians who, who do read their Bibles because of what seems to be parallel accounts that seem to almost contradict it. If we were to read Matthew 3, for instance, uh, verse 18 through 19, it says, Now Jesus, now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, 
and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We see similar accounts of this in uh, Mark 1.16 and again in Luke 5. And this text does not harmonize with our text today. Our text today says that Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist. And when he started following Jesus, that's when he went and got his brother Peter. Now, fortunately for us, we don't need to make these texts harmonize because the texts are talking about two entirely different events. The timeline makes this pretty clear. There's one thing in particular that we have to look at, and that's John the Baptist himself. In our text, Andrew and the other apostles start following because, as it says in verse 35, again the next day John was standing with his disciples. So this takes place two days after the Jews sent priests and Levites to question John the Baptist. Then verse 36 and 37, it says, And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And then the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So they followed Jesus because of the teaching and preaching of John the Baptist. This timeline doesn't work with Matthew and Mark's accounts, because both of those accounts uh, at the time of both those accounts, John the Baptist was already in custody. We see it in Mark 1.14. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. So this indicates to us that the, the events that are described in the synoptic gospels are different from the events described in John here. And so this lines up with the topic of a calling The calling that we see in the synoptic gospels is what A.W. Pink called a call to service. Whereas John is describing conversion itself. Pink puts it this way. He says, John tells us of the conversion of these disciples. Whereas Mark, as also Matthew and Luke, deal with their call to service. A service which concerned the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That John omits the call to service, which each of the other three evangelists record, brings out again the special character of the gospel, for he treats not the dispensational but the spiritual relationships. And therefore, was it reserved for him to describe the conversion of these first disciples of Christ? So what the synoptics are dealing with is a call to service. And this is a call to service is an important part of someone's calling, but it's much different than a call to conversion or what we might call a gospel call. And that's what we're dealing with today. This is the kind of call that Paul talks about in in Romans 8.30, when he says that those who are predestined, he also called. It's an effectual calling. It's the work of God and not of man. I I like the way that the the Baptist catechism uh, uh, summarizes it in question 34. It asks the question, um, what is the effectual calling? What is an effectual calling? And the answer is, effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills. He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And that's the calling that we're dealing with. It's an effectual calling of Christ. So if we go back to our text, the, the effectual call here of Jesus. But even within our short text, there's not one singular call or one way in which Christ calls his 
disciples. Christ calls disciples in many different ways. Psalm 103.14 reminds us that the Lord knows our frame. And so too here, Jesus knows the frame of, his, of these two disciples. And in verse 38, he asks them, what do you seek? Now, on the one hand, there could be a purely external element to this question. Jesus could be asking, what do you want? Why are you following me? However, the, the context here indicates that Jesus is talking about a, a deeper question than that. And I believe that this is a, a call of Christ to these two men to examine themselves and see what it is that they truly want. And I, I, can, I can see in my own walk, in my own conversion, how, how Christ really did ask me this question. He asked me what it was that I was seeking. Let me ask you, if you think back on the, on the way in which Christ changed you, what, what is it that you were seeking? Can we say with Paul that, that we sought and today we still seek Christ? As he says in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And the answer of these two men is, is a further indication that they seem, they seem to see more depth in the question than we might see at first blush. For they answer him, Rabbi, where are you staying? Now we need to break this down a little bit because on the surface it doesn't seem uh, like a very deep answer either. But first of all, they call him Rabbi, which John points out means teacher. This is a, a title of respect and it's often applied to Jesus. So they address him with respect, but it also seems to indicate that they want to learn from him. He asks, what do you, what do you seek? And they reply, teacher. But they answer his question with another question, where are you staying? This word stay in the, in the Greek is a Greek word, meno, and it's sometimes translated as abide. And it's, it's an ongoing theme throughout the Gospel of John. We see it over and over, and if we look at John 15, for instance, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Then later he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So the point here is that the disciples are not simply asking about lodging for the night. They're, they're, they're wanting to abide in Christ. Jesus calls them by knowing their frame and asking them, what do you seek? But as I said, there's not just one call here. He, he knows our frame and, he, and shortly we'll get into the means in which he, he employs to call men. But my focus at the moment is the call itself. So if you look at verse 40 through 42, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So the way Christ calls Peter here, 
And the way he calls Nathaniel in verses 47 and 48 are very similar. He, he disarms them by showing an intimate knowledge of who they are. We have no reason to suspect that Peter and Jesus have a prior relationship uh, at this point. And Jesus was not present when Andrew came to Peter and told him that they found the Messiah. And yet no other words were necessary. Christ had an intimate knowledge of who Peter is and who he will become. Even as a believer, if we look through the Gospels, we see that Peter was himself at times hot-headed, impetuous, and somewhat flaky. He's not the picture of an immovable rock. If we remember, he's the one that cut off the ear of the, the slave of the high priest. He denied Jesus three times. He lacks faith and doubts when Jesus walks on the water and he starts to sink. Of all the apostles, Peter seems to be the most visibly flawed and fickle. And there's no doubt that Peter somewhat understands that of himself. And here in our text, Jesus, is, Jesus acknowledges just who he is. He says, you are Simon, the son of John. And it's, 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 after, as, it's is, as, as if he's saying, I know exactly who you are and exactly who I am going to make you. I'm a, you will be called Cephas. And John adds the translation, which means Peter. And we know from Matthew 16, 18, that Cephas and Peter are both words for rock. So Jesus here is stressing to Peter who he's going to make him into. He's going to make him into a rock of a man. And this is how Jesus works in our conversions. He exposes the reality of who we are and shows us who he's going to make us. And, and whether you buy it or not, and I, I do, but I, I don't know if it's 100% supported by the text, but commentators like A.W. Pink have noted that Peter here is a representative character and that we ourselves can see how we are represented in him when we understand the proper names. So he points out that Simon is translated hearing and he's the son of John, which is translated God, God's gift. So we become Christians by hearing and it's a spiritual gift that each one of us will be transformed into living stones, 1 Peter 2, 5. So whether or not the, the text lends itself to Peter as a representative character, it's a worthwhile discussion, but, the, but either way, the, the reality remains the same. When we're converted, we're radically changed, and it's the work of God. Jesus calls us to new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old thing passed away. Behold, new things have come. And for the sake of time, I'm, I'm not going to get into Nathaniel's calling specifically, other than to reiterate what I said earlier, which is that there are some parallels between his calling and Peter's. And Nathaniel, at the end of the day, demonstrates, Jesus demonstrates to Nathaniel uh, in, in the same way that he did Peter, that he knows exactly who he is. And that in itself was enough to, to wake up Nathaniel to who Christ was. But the last call that I want to spend a moment on is Christ calling Philip. And this, this one's the shortest, shortest and simplest, but in many ways it's the most normative experience for Christians. 
In the case of Andrew, it was a question, what do you seek? For Peter, it was a statement of who he is and who he was to become. But for Philip, the call was an unavoidable command. Follow me. Matthew Henry said this. He said, Philip was brought to be a disciple by the power of Christ, going along with that word, follow me. The nature of true Christianity is following Christ, devoting ourselves to the converse and conduct, attending his movement and treading in his steps. It's so simple, and, and yet it is profound that, that we can be teetering on the brink of destruction and, and be brought to Christ by simple words, follow me. Our entire lives can change that easily. Now, as, as Christians, evangelism can be in, in, intimidating because we, we like to have the right words to say, and we want to present the gospel in the perfect way. And we put so much pressure on our performance but it's God that changes hearts. And Christ calls those to him which the Father has given him. And the hearts will turn to Christ at the simplest of commands, follow me. So as for us in our evangelism, we simply have the opportunity to be used as God, used by God as a means. And that's where I'd like to shift our attention from the call of Christ to the means that are employed. In much the same way, Christ is not relegated to one method of calling. Uh, in the same way that Christ is not relegated to one method of calling people into himself, he's equally not restricted in the means that he employs. And my hope that is that this is a comfort to all of us. I often think of the ministry, the way of the master. And I, I don't say this to impugn their ministry. It's a, it's a great ministry from what I know of it. But... There's something in that name, the way of the master, which seems to imply that there's one way that God uses to, to change men. It really, in some ways, should almost be the ways of the master. Because, because Christ, and we see it in our text, he employs different means for converting hearts. In our text, the first way that men are called to Christ is through the preached word. And I, I think it's no accident the preached word is the first thing brought up because it's the preeminent way in which God uses to call men. And so here, John the Baptist preached the words, Behold the Lamb of God. And the response of the two disciples who heard him speak was to follow Jesus. And likely this wasn't the first time that these disciples had heard him preach about Jesus. For un undoubtedly they were there the previous day when he preached the exact same message. We see it in verse 29 when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They had heard the message, but their hearts had not yet been transformed in a way that would allow them to respond to the message. Here John says the same thing over again, but this time the disciples are moved to take action. They followed Jesus and we know that their following is a direct result of John's preaching because the fact is reiterated in verse 40. One of the two who, who heard John speak and followed him. So God used the preach word to awaken the hearts of his disciples. And this should be an encouragement to us for how often have we shared the gospel with someone and it seemed to have no effect whatsoever. But continue to be faithful. Continue to preach the word. For we have no idea when God will move upon a heart effectually. 
Preaching is often lifted up throughout the New Testament as the primary tool for spreading the gospel. And it's often shown as working hand in hand with God's effectual calling. This was the case for Lydia in Acts 16, 14. It says a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Paul makes a similar assertion in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, when he says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I like the way Thomas Watson summarizes the preached word. He says, It was by the ear, by our first parents listening to the serpent, that we lost paradise. And it is by the ear, by hearing the word, that we, got, that we get to heaven. Hear and your souls shall live. Isaiah 55, 3. So preaching is the primary means that God uses to effectually call men. But remember that preaching itself is not an effectual call. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So we are faithful to preach, but God calls who he wills. The preeminent means by which God calls his elect is through the preached word. However, as I already stated, it's not the only means by which God calls men. We see in our text that both Peter and Nathaniel were brought to Christ through family. Verse 41, speaking of Andrew, it says, He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And again, excuse me, and again after Philip's conversion, he finds Nathaniel in verse 45 and says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Both encounters start by men being converted and immediately going and finding their brothers and saying, we have found. And there's something in this phrase, we have found, it indicates that these men were seeking something. And, and how true is that of our own relationships? A life without Christ is incomplete. And even those who would claim to be fine have and incompleteness in their lives. And whether they're aware of it or not, they're seeking after something. And so these men come to their brothers, not to tell them of a new discovery, but to say that they have found what their hearts have been missing this whole time, what they had all been searching for, for Christ, the Messiah, the one of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote. Matthew Henry said this, he said, Hereby it appears that Andrew had been with Jesus, that he was so full of him that he had been in the mount for his face shone. He knew that there was enough in Christ for all, and having tasted that he is gracious, he could not rest till those he loved had tasted it too. No true grace hates monopolies and loves not to eat its morsels alone. And I would say that the principle here is broader than just family. It, it applies to those in which we have personal relations. Anyone that we have a relationship with, 
I'm a Christian today because I had faithful parents. And God placed them in my life. And in much the same way, God has placed people in your lives, whether it's parents, sisters, brothers, children, husbands, wives, friends, co-workers. I don't know who it is. But he is enabling all of us to be a means to bring the gospel to bear on our loved ones. I love that imagery that, that Henry talks about. That he had been in the mount for his face shown. That God would grant each of us encounters with Christ that left us with our face shining. That our loved ones might see that we found the Messiah. And maybe this is the case for you. That your, your face has shown in your home or around your family for years. And you've shared the gospel. And the needle just doesn't seem to have ever moved. Don't lose heart. Remember that we have the pleasure of being used by God, but God changes the hearts of men. And we actually see this exemplified in our third conversion. Before Philip went and told Nathaniel about Christ, he first encountered Christ himself. And sometimes the the means that Christ employs are purely miraculous. I used to do a decent amount of time doing prison ministry and I've had the opportunity to do a lot of traveling uh, overseas and we would uh, train pastors and, and lay people in how to conduct prison ministry and start prison ministries up in their countries. And I was in a country with another faithful man, but we, we didn't see eye to eye in the doctrines of grace. And so we had some interesting conversations but one evening, one of the pastors we were working with came to us and, and he was really concerned because the country we were in had barred all Christians from the prisons. Um, and you, if you were a professed Christian, you could have no contact with any prisoners from that point forward. And he was, we spent time with him, we prayed with him, we, we did our best to counsel him. And after he had left, my friend and I were talking and my friend was really uh, upset and concerned by this because he felt that if, if a Christian couldn't get into that prison, then there was no hope for the prisoners. They were lost. And I didn't really think twice, being a guy who really um, maybe is a bit dense, but also trusts in, in the sovereignty of God in a significant way to think to myself, Christ will call whom he, he calls. And it's unfortunate that corrupt governments won't allow Christians into their jails. And yet, let's not think for a second that that's going to thwart God's plans. My friend actually didn't like that answer. Um, and we had a good discussion about it afterwards. But the, the, the point is that God's not limited in, in how he calls men. And he's not dependent upon us. I, I can't help but think of the triumphal entry and it's not speaking about the means of, of calling someone, but, but yet uh, there's something to it when uh, Jesus said, uh, when the disciples are shouting, you know, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and the Pharisees don't like it. So they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replies to them, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. 
And, that, and that's what's happening here in, in verse 43. The next day he, he, he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. God did not use preaching or the witness of a brother. He went directly to the lost sheep and called him home. A.W. Pink says of Philip's conversion that the fact that Philip was saved apart from all human instrumentality should teach us that God has not reached the end of his resources, even though preachers should prove unfaithful to teach their calling. And even though individual believers are too apathetic to go forth, bidding sinners to come to Christ. God uses man to achieve his ends. And what a blessing it is for us to have the opportunities to be partakers in that gospel call of Christ. But if we're inadequate or we fail at this task, praise be to God that he doesn't depend on us. His sheep will hear his voice and come to him. So we discussed the effectual call of Christ and, and the means that Christ uses to call his disciples. And, and in kind of our concluding thoughts here, I want to look briefly at the result of this. In both verse 39 and 46, we hear the phrase, come and see. I find this phrase to be a crucial element of the overall call and conversion of these disciples. I want to look I want to focus our attention on Jesus' use of that phrase in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so they came and saw where he was staying, and he stayed with them that day. Excuse me. <coughs> <Excuse me. coughs> For it was about the tenth hour. So we spoke earlier about how these two disciples were converted. Their hearts were changed through preaching. <clears throat> and if John, they were, sorry, they were changed through the preaching of John and they started following Jesus. But here Jesus takes two new converts and he, did, he invites them to dwell with him. And I don't think that this is an inconsequential act if we pair it with John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These two disciples desired to dwell with, with God. And they wanted to abide. We, we talked about this earlier, how they, had, they wanted to abide in Christ. And then Jesus invites them, come and see. And they followed and they dwelt with the living God. And this is the call to all of those who are chosen by God, who are effectually called by God. They are left, they're not left to sort things out by themselves. They're called to come and see to dwell amongst the living God. And finally, these words, come and see, have implications on the final words of this chapter. After Jesus tells us that Nathaniel that he saw him under the fig tree, Nathaniel had all the proof that he needed. He says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. 
But then in verse 50 through 51, Jesus says to him, because I said that, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, almost all commentators agree that this is an imagery of Jacob's ladder from Genesis 28. And it's Jesus demonstrating that he's the true ladder which links heaven and earth. And and there are incredible parallels when we look at that. But what I want to draw your attention to is the, excuse me, is the fact that there is no end to which we will, to that which we will see, when we abide in Christ. Our walk does not end the moment. Our walk doesn't end the moment that we start following Jesus. It's the very beginning. And Christian, and Christ calls each of us, every one of us, to come and see. And the glory that we will witness and the, the depth of who Christ is has no end. And so if you're a new believer, or an old believer, or if you're not a believer at all, the call is the same. The call is for us to abide in Christ. The call is for us to come and see Let's pray. Father God, what a glorious reality that you have called us to yourself. We ask that we might leave every encounter that we have with you that face, with faces that shine like Moses and that we might be used by you as a means to bring your lost sheep to you. That we might hear you call out, come and see. God, we thank you for this Lord's day. We pray that in all things you might be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.